Greetings and welcome to Inside the Master's Studio, a behind-the-screen look at the art of GMing. Joining us today is Tom Nipple. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Let's go back to the very beginning. Did you start off as a GM or a player? Well, as it turns out, I started out as a GM, having picked up Dungeons and Dragons as you know my first formative role-playing game. The group of friends that I you know hung out with, I was the only one brave enough to DM. So I've been stuck there ever since. Did you guys hold a vote for you GMing? No, gods, no. Um, I think I recall it coming down to I had an idea for a very simple adventure and the initiative to actually kind of put it into practice. And the other guys were more interested in, hey, let's make a cool fighter dude or hey, let's make a cool thief. Whereas I was like, you mean I get to run an entire reality? That sounds great. And do you remember what this initial story was? Oh, it was something very, you know, adolescent wrote. Um, something along the lines of, you know, you are a band of peasant heroes, folk heroes from the countryside, and there's marauding hill giants, and you fight them, and et cetera, et cetera. And then it went off from there. You know, it kind of just creativity of an adolescent ran wild. How long was that game able to survive? Uh, We ended up playing most of my middle school and high school. Now, we did kind of bounce around. Um, We played D&D, but, you know, guys got tired of playing certain characters or, you know, we'd get distracted or, you know, we would try another game for a while. And so there wasn't a lot of strong continuity to that, those early games of mine. But the desire to play was the important thing that my friends took from it. And we're still playing ever since. Did they ever swap out for GM responsibilities, or were you always the go-to? No one ever really volunteered. It seemed like everybody was pretty settled in the comfort zone of being a player, and I had, at that point, I guess, really adopted being a GM. I like playing. I enjoy playing role-playing games, but I do take a great amount of joy from DMing for other people. So we never really swapped. When you would take breaks from D&D, what would you go to? Our, our go-to games back then, um, playing Battletech, tabletop, you know, miniatures games. Uh, we would play Magic the Gathering. About that time, we were all coming into our teenage years of having some money, being able to afford our own computers. So we would, you know, we built our own computers and would play LAN games. So kind of that mix and rotation of D&D, Battletech, Magic computer games was kind of our mix. Were you generally responsible for introducing the group to new games, or was it a shared responsibility? I think once we all kind of communally discovered D&D, and then the wider world of hobby gaming after that, my close group of friends and I, we were all very interested in it, but I think I was the one that really kind of ran with it. Most of the time when someone would suggest, hey, let's try something new. It was usually me. Are you still in touch with the group today? Oh, yeah. They're my high school buddies, and we're actually still playing D&D to this day. It's not the same edition. We went up through, you know, advanced to third to fourth to fifth, and and we're playing fifth edition now. Do you have a favorite edition to GM? I like each of the editions for their own 
you know, quirkiness. I liked AD&D because it was the formative Dungeons and Dragons, you know, the first one I learned. Um, and it's kind of very mysterious. There was these books and they were so colorful looking and they had all this mystery baked into them about these different classes of heroes. And then I liked third for its mechanical kind of sorting things out and making some sense to that old system. We played a lot of fourth edition that we very much enjoyed because the group of guys that I play with from high school are very much, they like to see a thing on a table when we play and they like to have something to interact with. So it was very, our games tend to be very combat focused. Um, and fourth edition was very much in that vein. And in the last couple of years, since the launch of fifth edition D and I've tried to kind of move them out of that comfort zone a little bit into more role playing, more theater of the mind. And they're starting to come to that point where it's like, I can just describe a scene now and I don't have to have something necessarily on the table and they will latch onto it, which is really cool. Have you maintained the same universe over the different editions or does it change for every edition? Well, so it's a little weird I have all my old materials from when I was in high school. So I, you know, I did a lot of writing and you know, I, I you know, made up my own kind of whole cloth universe. And then we went off to college, kind of separated out a little bit. And then when we picked up in fourth edition, I decided I, I didn't want to invest quite so much time. And we played through written modules, you know, the kinds you'd buy off the shelf. And that way I could just read a module, present that stuff and go and have a little bit less prep time. And what I found was when we were transitioning from fourth to fifth and the the actual product available from Wizards kind of didn't dry up. There was still plenty that we hadn't played, but it didn't really fit with where my guy's group was going. So I went back and looked at everything I'd been collecting for 20 plus years, looked at all of my collection of the stuff that I wrote, the stuff that I had run that was just printed boxed material and some other ideas that I had had in my adult life having learned from playing other games. And I kind of have molded an amalgamation world of all of those things. So there's a through line a bit from our games in middle school and high school to now, but it's definitely bounced around between a piece I wrote or a piece that was produced by the company or etc. Is there anything from the prior editions that you would want to bring to 5th edition or that you have brought? I think the thing that 5th brings to the table that was very exemplified in the DMG when they finally released it was that D&D as a game is something that you make what you put into it and get out of it. And so if you wanted to incorporate something from a prior edition or something whole cloth that you created, the game said, go ahead and do it. There's nothing wrong with that. And it gave examples of how to do that. Um, so there's nothing specific I would want to bring up from the earlier editions of the game necessarily, because I've already kind of incorporated all of the, the kind of backstory and, you know, I have a pantheon for this home campaign that's kind of a hodgepodge of the D&D 4th edition points of light deities with some older 2nd edition D&D stuff and just kind of already mixed all that together. And the 5th edition framework is flexible enough that I can 
I can just do that. And so I, I, I've already kind of pulled things in from older editions. When you're working on a story for your group, where do you get your inspiration? I listen to a lot of podcasts, um, you know, Let's Plays. I listen to the Acquisitions Incorporated Penny Arcade games. I listen to Chris Perkins' other games that he runs. Um, I watch some other games on YouTube or listen to podcasts. In addition to just kind of coming up with what is what is my group doing right now in-game and what makes sense for them. And so I have taken more inspiration from what is what is wizards doing right now with their current product for instance when they did rise of tiamat i had kind of a more of a bent towards hey dragons evil dragons are out in the world and then they moved into the war with the elemental factions and i kind of bent it that way a little bit and then there was the underdark that they released and i kind of sent my guys on an underdark excursion in the process not really using the words on the page that wizards was printing in their books, which were very good, but using that as inspiration for where I could drive my players to new and interesting scenarios. And the important thing to me is I want to present my guys, my group, my home group, or even other groups that maybe I step into a convention kind of setting with a unique experience or an experience. The experience is the important thing. So I pull from everywhere and kind of whatever's in front of me. And at least where we've gotten to now, today, we've accumulated enough kind of history with the current group of characters they're playing that now I can push them in other interesting directions based on their backstories. With a group that's been playing together so long, do you remember or can you name the longest living character in that game so i have a fairly strong feel and personal policy that DD as a game is best played for the experience and character death while it should be recognized and is important is not something that I like to leave to random chance. That's not the kind of home game that I run. And that's not for everybody, and I get that. But for this group of players, they've been playing the same characters since we started up in 4th edition. And I translated those characters over to 5th edition when we moved. I've actually had a couple of instances so far where a character, by rule, is dead. Like he, that character was, and for instance, I, I, the, the most memorable one, the party was in the sewer of a large city. They were tracking down some sort of plague that was infesting the city. They discovered some undead of various description. And while they were fighting a group of ghouls and zombies and the like, some more powerful undead, my dragonborn paladin, played by a close friend, basically kind of got separated from the group jumped by several ghouls and mechanically in the combat of the game he was dead you know he had taken more hit points in damage than he had he had taken multiple death saving throws you know he was dead there was no question in my mind but here's the thing that was important to me i knew that was eventually going to happen to this group because they are so combat focused at times 
I knew they were eventually going to run into a situation where the die rolls weren't going to go their way and they're going to bite off a little more than they think they can chew, whether they realize it or not. And I planned for it. And I kind of wrote it into the backstory of the game that as soon as someone died, that character was going to kind of get tapped by the goddess of death of the fictional realm and say, hey, look, I know you're dead, but you know what? You're not done yet. So that character in fiction was dead, presumably, and then woke up. And it took several more sessions of play before he realized, oh, I actually was dead. I have this weird tattoo on my arm now that wasn't there before. What does that mean? And so while the character died, I didn't let it. That's kind of some GM fiat because my my guys are attached to their characters and I wouldn't want to I wouldn't want to put them in a situation where I'm just killing their characters without a really good substantiated reason that makes them feel like they had some say in the matter. And D&D very much sometimes is like, all right, I blew every single role in this fight. I couldn't make a save to save my life and this character just bites it to a kobold and that sucks. If it's your you know, your ninth level paladin that you've been playing for four years, I kind of hate that feeling. So I'm okay personally with stepping in and saying, well, yeah, the math, but the story says we go this way instead. And you turn that death into something more interesting. Do your players know how you feel? Yeah, I've actually told them about it. And we, we all laughed because, because that group is so combat focused at times when we finally had a character death i told them at the end of the session straight up guys i've been planning for this for like literally years you guys have been so good at playing the game that it's just literally never come up before now and then they all laughed at me like yeah okay that's the thing we expected out of you tom is there any concern on your part that knowing this will make them careless in their play? I don't think so, because they're already pretty careless, not to put too fine a point on it. I mean, they play their characters really well, and they play them in character for how they're set up and designed and what their backstories are. So my my dragonborn paladin of Bahamut, his first instinct when there is something evil that threatens is to throw himself at it. And that's, I like that. That's super cool. That's a very iconic kind of stance for a character to have. And I don't want to, I don't want to put roadblocks in the way of the way that player wants to play that kind of character. What I want to do is provide him opportunities to look cool and have fun playing that kind of character and if he bites it because the numbers don't go his way, then fine, the numbers don't go his way. And maybe he backs off and is more careful the next time. He has shown a little bit more less headfirst kind of approach, but he's still very much that character. And I like that he's able to play the concept that he wants to play. What about for NPCs? Have there been any that you saved because you like them? I've actually been pretty, 
I don't want to say even-handed. It's hard to make a value judgment with NPCs because I don't like to use the the plot escape clause for important NPCs. Um, for instance, we had as a part of this game several months ago a several session running thread through the story where they were chasing this drow mage and basically mage does evil things and he's hooked up with evil gods and they needed to stop him blah 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 the typical typical kind of dnd grist that you love to kind of just dig into and i would have loved to have saved that sorcerer somehow after their climactic battle to kind of stuff them in my back pocket but they'd been chasing this wizard in game for a long time and as much as i would have wanted to grab a hold of that character and and somehow by fiat say you know yeah you killed him but secretly in my back pocket but then I feel like that would take away a bit from the amazing climactic battle that they had with this sorcerer, which was this amazing set piece I had actually built and put on a table where there was an evil temple and there was, you know, we took pictures of it and it went up on their Facebook pages and, you know, with the, the combat ran for, you know, an hour and a half or more. And like, by the time they were done, my guys looked at me at the end of the session and went, that was amazing. I was like, yeah, that went about as well experientially as I had hoped. And you know what? You killed the bad guy. And as cool as that bad guy could have been or may may was in my head, they accomplished their goal. They defeated the evil. They killed the character, despite him being invisible, trying to run away, using every trick in my DM bag that I had at the time. And they won. And they won fair by the rules. You know, they hit him with swords and spells and evil wizard dies so evil wizard dies but there's the thing you know as a gm as a dm creating these stories and creating creating these experiences for my players just because the cool npc that i made bites it dies off gets killed or even like maybe my group sneak attacks him in a moment that i wasn't expecting i have the opportunity to turn that into a cool story and say here's the consequences that fall out of that. And maybe that guy wasn't the big bad guy, that there actually was a big bad bigger guy or a big bad organization that he was a part of. And, you know, use that, that NPC's death or removal from the game to tell more story. Have you created any NPCs that basically put you with the party as your own character. I actually try to avoid that as much as I can because my feeling on running a role-playing game as a GM is that I'm there to facilitate an experience for the players at the table. And my job and my enjoyment is presenting them that experience and trying to not get in the way of it, which may, it's kind of an odd way to say it, but I don't want to put necessarily a character into my friend's character's group that, you know, either becomes a cipher for myself 
or becomes a kind of golden key for the group when they get stuck. I would rather they figure out how to proceed on their own terms without having to turn to the GM character and say, oh, what do we do next? Because I've seen that happen in enough games, and I, I just feel like, for me at least, that detracts from the kind of game that I want to run. You had mentioned building a set piece for this climactic battle. What other things do you do to give a sense of immersion to your characters? So one of my hobbies, in addition to playing games of all stripes, is that I also have a very deep history in building tabletop terrain set setups. Um, there's a yearly convention that I go to back at my college that I run this big homebrew custom game that I have a you know dungeon layout that I create and set out every year and about every year or so I'll make a new one of those things and what I've started to do is take the pieces of that and incorporate them into my D&D games so one year probably two or three years ago I built this big evil temple looking thing for a friend he was actually running another game he said hey can you build me a thing and I said sure I can make you a big evil temple that's I don't have one of those yet it's sitting in my basement. Um, and so I built it, used it for the convention. He used it for his game. And then when I was sitting in my basement trying to come up with, well, what, what's the next session for my guys? We're coming to this climactic battle. Hey, I have an evil temple just sitting right over there in the corner. I should probably use that because it's huge and impressive looking and it will blow their minds. And so... Oftentimes, when I'm setting up for D&D, this, you know, D&D games, I will bring some of that tabletop terrain. I've got hundreds of miniatures just kind of stashed away from over the years of collecting props, set pieces, little things like that, that help visualize what I'm describing. I like theater of the mind quite a bit, but I know that one of my weaknesses as a GM sometimes is giving a robust mental image for what's going on in a play space. But one of my strengths is physically creating miniature play spaces like that. I'm good at that. And so I try to leverage that as much as I can to put something physical on a table that my players can interact with and see, Oh, here's the front of a dungeon and it's got this look to it. And we can see that there's a trickle of water that runs down the hallway. And so the players can hear what I say. They can hear what I describe situationally and, you know, theater of the mind, but then actually look at the table and go, Oh yeah, that's what it looks like. Do you create these just for yourself or have you ever created them for, somebody to purchase so it's funny because my friends and my wife have all said hey why don't you why don't you turn this into a business why aren't you know what you know how do you you got to make some money off of this because you've been doing this for 12 years and making all this stuff and i'm like every time i i hear that i kind of chuckle and i'm like i would love to turn that into some sort of side endeavor that people could commission me to build works for them but what I've found is that space as a market has just so, so many options to it. I mean, you've got theater of the mind, which requires nothing. You've got paper craft, which allows people to print out 
literal dungeons from their printer and fold them together and put up these table setups. You've got things like Dwarven Forge, which you can kind of pre-buy and just assemble them in place. And then you get up to that next step of custom layouts, custom tabletop settings. And like I said, I would love to do that. And if someone were to approach me after seeing what I do and said, hey, that looks awesome. Can you build me that? I would absolutely throw in and say, yeah, you know what? Let's work something out. I can do that for you. But in the meanwhile, I still have this kind of burning desire to create things for myself for my own games because I, I I love building the setups. It's just, I have fun playing with wood and plaster and silicon rubber molds and just assembling these things and painting them up. So most of that's for me, but I'm certainly open to requests. Do the players at your table do anything to add to the immersion? They do. They have been trying harder to be in character. You know, I've been playing with this particular group since we were in middle school. And, you know, when you're first starting out playing role-playing games, you kind of, it's, people have different comfort levels for how in character they get and like, you know, talking in the first person versus the third person versus describing what a character is doing. And I've always been of a mind to just let people find their own comfort zones. And in the last year or two of playing, my guys that I play with have become more comfortable inhabiting characters and actually kind of acting out, you know, speaking in the first person, what their intentions are as a character, as opposed to a player saying, my character does this. For me, that's the immersion that they bring to the table, which is becoming invested in the character that they're playing and invested in the situation I've described for them and really kind of driving that part of the experience. Do you do voices for the NPCs? I tried. Um, I have always wished, even from my childhood, to have been better at impressions and different voices. And so I have a few in my back pocket that I don't break out very often. I try. But it's something I need work on. And, you know, as with most things, you, you recognize your strengths and weaknesses and work on the weaknesses and lean on the strengths. Would you be willing to break one out for our audience? Oh, let's see. Um... Right then. Cheerio. It's time for a good fight now. You know, things like that. Um, and like I said, I'm, it's something I'm not good at. It's something I want to work on. So I, I interject it sparingly so that it has kind of the most punch. The silent Bob effect. Yeah, exactly. Did you discover this love of working on a miniature scale before or after you started playing Battletech? This actually came after Battletech. Um, it was something that came up during my college years and was there's a history to it, but basically there was an opportunity to create a table play space that was necessary for a game at the time. And that just set me off on that path. And at that point I had been playing Battletech for, you know, eight, eight, 10 years at that point already. Do you create landscape for Battletech as well, or just for 
Dungeons and Dragons. Well, so the thing about building miniature model terrain is that once you kind of go all in, the world is your oyster. And so I, I certainly absolutely have kind of a pile of Battletech terrain you know that's that's slowly churning its way out of the the factory in my basement um and the thing that i've discovered is or rediscovered i should say is that in the last couple of years with catalyst game labs launching the alpha strike version of the battletech rules and kind of really pushing the tabletop miniatures play for battletech with in a hexless format and and that's a game system that i actually very much enjoy that that has pushed me to create even more terrain so you know i've got a batch of buildings that i'm working on in the basement right now i've got a water tower that i've kind of cobbled together from random bits and bobs that i'm still painting up i i'm deep i'm in deep so everything tabletop terrain is kind of i'm there between the two systems Battletech and Dungeons and Dragons. Do you have a favorite item that you've crafted? My Battletech stuff tends to be very utilitarian, you know, buildings and like I said, there's a water tower thing that I've I've built and I'm painting that's kind of neat and cobbled together from some odd ideas. I crafted a scale building um, for Battletech since I I kind of feel like there's some scale issues with Battletech as a tabletop game, but whatever, that's a different conversation. So I made a particularly impressive, tall-looking skyscraper, at least for me, it's kind of a box, but whatever, um, that was big. Like when you would walk up to the table to see, oh yeah, there's a bunch of these little kind of factory-looking buildings. And then, oh my God, there's this big honking tower in the middle. That I like that particular building. And then on the... D&D side, you know, because I use my tabletop stuff for other games, homebrew games, things like that, like I try to mix up the different biomes that I have available. So like dungeon is great, like your typical gray stone slab and cobblestone dungeon. Like I got I got that in spades, but then I've also got like a desert tomb that I built. Like I've got an icy kind of biome it's it's hard to describe it because it's not really a tomb it's not really a dungeon it's kind of just an icy habitat um i've got i actually built some built some stuff for a another friend that was running star wars games at a convention he's like hey can you can you build me something and i'm like you know i could probably build you a tatooine junkyard really easily and so i built i built a tatooine junkyard each of those things has a special place in my heart when I finally get them done and I'm done being frustrated by paint not working the way I want or a plaster not applying or blah, blah, blah. You know, the fiddly little bits of creation. Um, each of those pieces, when they're done, I step back and look at it and go, you know what? I did a cool thing here. This makes me happy. What about favorite item that you've created within the fiction of Dungeons & Dragons? <laughs> That's a doozy. So... In the current storyline that my guys are playing through, unbeknownst to them, the, and, and this is this is your typical, there's nothing nothing very creative about this. They found a sword. And, you know, it's kind of your typical, prototypical, dull, rusted, doesn't look very impressive kind of weapon. Maybe it's from an older age and is out of style. 
But when the you know the dragonborn paladin picked it up, he's like, you know, there's something here. And the thing that makes it my favorite is that it's a tool for him. It was absolutely intended to be a tool for the group. They there were any number of different fighters or paladins in the group that could wield it. But um, it's also a tool for me because secretly they don't know what's going on with that weapon and it's pretty deep and bonkers having played with the same group for so long are they still able to surprise you they surprise me usually at least once per session if not more than one i love my guys to death you know they're some of my closest friends and i think a lot of times that I know them, you know, I've been playing with these guys for years and years and years, and I've known them since we were middle schoolers. And you think you know people, but then you throw them into a fictional situation playing a fictional character that is not that person and has other motivations and drives. And that combination of someone that you know just to just the deepest level with a character that is a somewhat blank slate but also has its own things going on you layer those two things together and that combination like i said sometimes it just at least once a session one or another or many of my players will do something that a i didn't predict and b is just so off the wall that I couldn't have predicted it. And I try. I try very hard. I will present them with a scenario and there will be some clear paths like path A or path B or maybe some approaches to a particular scenario. And someone will go, well, you know, there was this guy across the town that we talked to earlier. What about that guy? I'm going to hunt that guy down. And I'm thinking to myself as we're playing, that guy has nothing to do with what's going on. But you know... okay i can do i can connect the dots here that guy to a to b and maybe he knows something about c and i'm completely surprised at their creativity do your players ever start to feel the urge to roll up a new character just to experience a different class no um we're my guys are pretty attached to their characters that they have now like I said, they've been playing them for years at this point, but up th- up through you know system to system to system, um, I feel like I've kind of progressed them through the levels, the actual D and D leveling system, fairly slowly because I wanted to have a pretty well controlled and understood mechanical grasp on how the games were going to play. And that's something I've actually kind of felt like, all right, we've been playing so long. I need to loosen the reins a little bit here, give them a little more freedom, let them inherit more power more rapidly um, by giving them character levels more quickly. We haven't reached the end of the progression or the end of the story for these characters, for them, for either them or for me. And so they're perfectly happy playing these characters and seeing where they go. I'm happy letting them find what that story is for each of those characters. 
Has your group of friends ever had a falling out during one of the games? No, and that's actually, I think, a testament to playing with the same people that you've been friends with for so long and being a group of not just like-minded adults, but adults and able to, you know, engage, you know, socially and emotionally as adults so that even when there is, you know, maybe say there is some friction or maybe say there's a disagreement in the group, um, we've always been able to work past it. And I, I feel like that's a real testament to the strength of our friendship individually and as a group that we've never really had a problem with that. Has anyone ever tried to bring in a new member or is it a fairly closed group at this point? It's actually a pretty open group, but the opportunities to bring new players in has, have been pretty limited. Um, we've had some one-off sessions where, for instance, one of my best friends had a cousin coming into town that same weekend, just happened to be the weekend we were going to play. And he's like, hey, could my could my cousin Chris play? He used to play D&D. I'm all for it. I'm all for just facilitating a good time and having an interesting, you know, spending a few interesting hours goofing off with imaginary characters. So I said, yeah, what's he want to play? Tell me what kind of, get me in touch with him. What kind of character does he want to do? And, you know, we set it up and he had this player, Chris had a character to play. He was ready. He jumped right in. And when we were done, his part of the story was done. And Chris went back to whichever state many states away after that weekend and we haven't played with him since. One of my friends who tends to host the D&D get-togethers um, has a young son that is right on the cusp of that age where you can engage with them through games like this. And he asked me about a year ago, hey, would you mind if my son plays D&D with us? And I'm totally cool with that. I had to make a few adjustments to kind of, you know, there there's some themes and there's some materials you can't really use with a with a younger younger kid of that age, which is fine. I can I can work around that. Um, and you know, as a as a young child, you know, like he's got other things going on, so sometimes he'll play with us and sometimes he won't play with us. So his character and his part of the story is relatively minor. He kind of he's the fighter that shows up, hangs out for a bit knocks some heads and then kind of wanders off, which is cool. I'm cool with that. And so is the rest of the group and everybody seems to have a good time with it. Has his dad mentioned if he's trying to get any of the other kids involved with D and D now? Not yet. The, the son is still very much a, I want to play sports. The D&D is cool. I like hanging out with dad and dad's friends, but I've got my own other social things going on. So he'll play with us when there's nothing else going on, but the son is very much a social butterfly. So he may or may not be doing any other thing when we get together for D&D. Do you have in mind an ending to this world you've created? Should something happen that the group wouldn't be able to get together anymore? I think what I would try and do if we weren't able to keep getting together is I know where I want to take the story. It's your large epic story about the trifling of gods and all of that sort of thing and the involvement of mortals and God's plan. 
my end game for the group is to let them play through these characters as as far as they want and if at some point we get to a logical end for the characters then give them the opportunity to become part of the history of this world ascending to deific status forming some lasting institution in the world that i would take with me wherever i take this this homebrew world with me um and i think if we for whatever reason we're not able to sustain the game naturally to that point i think i would just speed that part up we're right on the cusp of them getting the realization of the real plot of what's going on and i think once that's out on the table and they understand here's the here's the stakes here's the real stakes the big stakes that i can probably steer the game to the my and my desired end game in a fast enough manner that if things did need to end abruptly we could do it and the other thing is you know if if for some reason this group you know disbanded and we weren't able to keep getting together part of the process of playing role-playing games is that you're getting together to have a good time and tell a shared story and some stories don't have ends and that's okay it's okay to have a story that was you know we fought some evil bad guys and the citizenry loves us and then they walked off into the sunset do you have any mementos from the world you've created that you've reproduced other than terrain there's some little tchotchkes that i've made um you know i've handcrafted little like I keep I keep wanting to call them terrain bits because that's what they get used for. But like sometimes I'll I'll build a custom miniature. Um, in fact, that actually just came up in the the last session we played. I wanted a I wanted a custom creature that was sufficiently threatening for the group and kind of tied into where the plot was going. And there wasn't something I could just buy off of the market. So I I built from a kit a monster heavily modified the sculpt of the thing and painted it myself. And I've got a few of those actually that I've done over the years that those, those get a special place on my shelf and I can look up at them and go, I remember that monster. I remember that character. I remember why that object exists and why I sculpted or built that object. Have you made any, souvenirs let's call them for your party members not so much yet most of the stuff that my group has had kind of hands feelies you would call them have been just feelies as part of the play of the game you know i'll write up a little a little document that's like maybe the first page of a tome that's got some history and some backstory to the to the world and the plot that they're playing in and they'll have that at the table um but not so much not so much like a souvenir yet does the party have an adventuring name so <laughs> the funniest part is when we first started playing again after kind of an extended break when we got back into fourth edition i wanted there to be some 
some kind of backstory continuity as to it's the it's the typical question of you're all in a bar why are you a party you know you're all in a tavern why are you a group and so i kind of hand waved the part where all right well you're a group it's fine it's understood you're actually part of a larger organization but you're an independent group of operators what do you want to call yourselves so i left that question to them and in their combined brilliant wisdom they came up with the mercs as in short for the mercenaries and that was literally the best they had do you try to tease them by having people refer to them as the the mercs a little bit it's so hard when they were when they created that name it's so boring and so it is so descriptive of the way this group plays and has played for so long that it's like how do you make fun of a potato a potato is a perfectly wonderful object it is nutritious and it gets the job done it gets you fed but it is completely unremarkable and so the, the same kind of goes for their name for their group like the mercs okay anything give me give me anything and there's just there's nothing to poke fun at well we are going to start getting wrapped up here but first i will have to ask questions from the pivo questionnaire as created by bernard pivo all right what is your favorite word? My favorite word right now in this moment is ambulatory. It just kind of rolls. Ambulatory. What is your least favorite word? Scratch. It's such a harsh word. But scratching feels good. It can feel good, but the, the, the mouthfeel, the, the vocal intonation of it, scratch. Ugh. Just mm, nails on a chalkboard. Okay, well, the way you said it was kind of gross. <laughs> what turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Seeing new things. Um, finding new experiences. Being open to just seeing out what's in the world and learning something new. Have you ever been to a location in the real world that you felt compelled to add to your Dungeons and Dragons world? My wife and I, for our honeymoon, were fortunate enough to go to Hawaii. And there's something about the lush, heavy rainfall side of the islands there that is kind of more jungle, buried in and on the mountainside. And it just oozes character. It just effusive feeling of this is i mean maybe short of going to an actual rainforest which it probably technically is but like i'm thinking brazilian amazon rainforest like that feel of being in a damp warm all-encompassing kind of forest on a mountain i so want to find a way to make that into a tabletop play space and just kind of recreating that feeling is so hard but i want to try and find a way to do it 
What turns you off? Honestly, there's not much that turns me off. The things that turn me off in role-playing games are discord or railroading or you know the kinds of things that you you look at a and d game and you go ugh, that led to a bad experience fortunately for me and the, the people that i tend to play with you know we don't have we don't have those problems did you have to learn that lesson firsthand or is that something you've experienced secondhand it's mostly secondhand, um, and I count myself fortunate that I've not actually been involved in very many play sessions or games, role-playing sessions, that had that kind of, you know, just grinding of gears that didn't work out. But I've seen enough of it at arm's length to know I don't want that at all. What is your favorite curse word to hear from your players? Oh, it's the F word. Because... If they're dropping the f bomb, I know I've I've hit I've hit exactly the right spot that I've needed to hit to elicit the reaction because my guys are fairly laid back. Like I said, multiple uh, um, parents. We all have children, and so we all kind of turn on the kid filters for the most part. But when when I manage to lay something into a game that just hits exactly the right angle. And just has exactly the, the the emotional impact I'm looking for, and it catches them. It can be a an exultation, it can be an F, or it could be like a oh F. That's when I know I've kind of hit that sweet spot. Can you recall the last time you got one in a session? It was actually in the most recent session. Like I said, I had created this big evil custom demon thing that they had to fight and i made real clear that like it was coming in from an unexpected angle and when it got there it actually killed the other big bad guy in the room just because it could and it was gonna be the thing like all right look you guys were fighting a room full of zombies and a vampire yeah that's great the demon is here it's time to throw down. And so that fight, as they progressed through it, got more and more desperate. And it was one of those wonderful D&D moments where the group was running on empty. They had used up everything in their tool belt. And it just came down to the fighter needed to get in there and just make a good move and he did and he struck and the rolls went in his favor and it clipped down the demon to just enough to down it and when i described that to the group they all kind of took a moment hooted and hollered for a second and then went and you could i could hear them just say f and just kind of deflate because they'd been on edge for half an hour of playing this combat what sound or noise do you love (laughs) i like the sound of laughter i like to giggle i like to laugh out loud i like to hear other people laughing because it means people are enjoying themselves what sound or noise do you hate i think grumbling or groaning because of the opposite, you know, like it's, you know, if I hear a player going under their breath or whatever, like it's, 
clearly something isn't lining up with expectations there. And that's something that like I jump on. I jump on to try and fix it. Like, all right, what's not working for you? What do I want it? What do I need to do to make this more fun for you? So when I hear that, it just kind of, uh, all right, I'm, I need, it sets me on edge. What game system would you like to attempt? I kickstarted very heavily the Fate system by Evil Hat Games, and I've read through the rulebook several times, and I cannot for the life of me figure out how the game plays, despite reading several play accounts. I, I need, I need, I want to get involved with a game of that system and see it live and try and understand it because it just baffles me. What game system would you not like to attempt? I think I would want to avoid anything of the Rifts or GURPS persuasion. I like my Crunchy. I like game systems. I'm a systems person. I like rules. But man, no. GURPS and Rifts and games of that ilk where the core rulebook starts at 300 pages? Mm, No. No thank you. And lastly, when your game concludes... What would you like to hear from your players? I would like to hear from them that they had a good time. And that could be on whatever time scale is important to them. You know, in the moment, in the long run, both. As long as the people that I'm spending time with playing games are having a good time, enjoying themselves, then... I'm satisfied. Thank you for joining us at the Master's Studio. Thank you very much. I've been your host, Moon Rules, and remember, find the fun.